All right, if you're in your study guide here, we're going to principle number seven. We're working our way down the top 12 principles, and this is a crucial one, so please fill in the blanks. If you have a pen or a pencil, a crayon, or lipstick, put this one in there on number seven, and that is focus on increasing positives and not simply on eradicating negatives. Focus on increasing positives and not simply on eradicating negatives. Now, here's one of the common fallacies that married couples fall into when they disagree. I've already told you it's not necessarily unhealthy to disagree, but one of the problems is when people get into disagreements, they forget to be good to each other. And that's what ultimately sinks relationships is be people become so focused on the disagreement and on trying to get their partner to agree with them and see things their way and solve the problem that they stop doing the everyday common courtesy, consideration, caring acts that make a marriage work. Sometimes people ask me, is there a formula that predicts marital success? Well, I'm pleased to tell you there actually is. There is a formula, and again, this comes directly from not just the Bible, but from the works of Dr. John Gottman. He found in studying hundreds of marriages over decades that there is a formula that can predict those couples that are going to stay together and be uh, stable and happy, and here it is. It's five to one. The formula is five to one. If you've got that formula in your marriage, chances are you're going to have a stable and successful marriage. Now, what in the world am I talking about? Well, it goes like this. Five positives for every one negative. And by positives, I don't mean necessarily you bring your wife a mink stole or buy a new car. I just mean sweetness, caring, consideration, compliments, things that you do that show your partner that you care about them. Five ordinary positive interactions for every one negative. And what Dr. Gottman found as he studied marriages is that if there are five negatives for every one positive, that couple is almost certainly going to divorce. If there's four, if there's three, if there's a multiple, if there's a out of balance proportion between negatives and positives. Now, I find this very encouraging because it tells me a few things. First of all, it tells me the crucial importance of everyday patterns of marital interaction. We build our lives together. And we build them out of very ordinary stuff. Just being good to each other. Just remembering to call when you're going to be late from work. Just remembering to... Take, pick up after yourself, just remembering to compliment your partner, just remembering to say thank you. There's a world of evidence to show that just showing appreciation greatly increases marital satisfaction. The everyday importance, the importance of everyday actions. The first insight I want you to recognize is that it's not the negatives that ultimately sink a relationship. It is the lack of positives. It's when we stop being good to each other. And notice again, we can get into that pattern of watering weeds. We spend all of our time and attention on the disagreements between ourselves. Second thing I want you to notice is negatives carry greater emotional weight. Remember, it's five to one. You need five positives for every one negative. One negative will be remembered, unfortunately, long after the positives are faded away. Negatives have greater emotional weight. Anybody ever been ugly to you? Insulted you? 
said something derogatory about you? You ever been in a store and the, wait- and the waitress or the cashier was just curt or ugly to you? You carry that with you. You remember that. If anybody's ever ugly to you or insults you, that carries more weight. Well, the same thing is true in marriage. I need to remember to be good to my partner. I need to remember to do all those common, everyday acts of courtesy, caring, and consideration because there's going to be times when I step on her toes. There's going to be times when I mess up. There's going to be times when I disappoint her. I'm going to have negatives. I'm not going to be a perfect husband. There's no such thing as a perfect husband. There's no such thing as a perfect wife. I'm going to mess up. So when I mess up, I want credit in the bank. I want my wife to think, well, he messed up, but that's out of the ordinary. That's atypical because usually he's a pretty good fellow. I want the positives in my relationship. Key insight number three. On even great marriages will have some negatives. It's inevitable. We are two imperfect human beings living together in close quarters. We are going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to disappoint each other. What predicts marital stability and happiness? Increasing positives into the marriage, not eliminating negatives in our mate. And one of the things I do as a marriage counselor when I first get a couple in and they're unhappy and they're disgruntled and they're dissatisfied is I do an assessment of how you're treating each other, how you're acting toward each other. What are you doing positive in your relationship? And if they're not doing anything positive, one of my first challenges is to get them to start doing something positive for each other. Because if I can't, I'm going to lose them. And they may lose the marriage. If I cannot get them to start seeing something positive or doing something positive for each other, the more I focus on their criticisms and complaints, the worse they're going to get. And some marriage counselors never understand this, and they inadvertently make the situation worse by watering weeds. I have got to do two things at the same time as a marriage counselor. I have got to help them solve their problem but I also have to find a way to encourage them to increase their positives. And so that is so very important, and you can take that to the bank. Principle number six. If you want to solve problems, you get that set down and you write a budget together. Now, if you have been married for any length of time, you know what I'm about to say, and that is one of the most common sources of conflict has to do with money. Money provides one of the flashpoints of marriage. And if I can get them to sit down together, in fact, with every premarital couple, before I will do the wedding, they got to bring me a budget. And not just a budget. I have a little form there where they have to fill out their top three short-term financial goals and their top three long-term financial goals. And I sit down with them and I say, okay, What do you want to do with your money in the next six months? And what do you want to do with your money in the next five years? What do you want to actually accomplish? I turn to the other partner. What do you want to do with your money? If I can get them to do two things, if they will tell me what their goals are and I get them on the same page, and usually they are, usually they're pretty close, and then I can get them to translate that into a budget, I have solved, or prevented rather, about 40% of the problems they're going to have. If I can get them on the same page, because what we need to do is we need to discuss financial goals, and that's all a budget is. It's a roadmap to getting where you want to go. 
A budget is an assessment tool to see how much money you have, how much you can spend, and what do you want to do with it. The second thing it does is it gets the couple on the same page financially. That way, when some purchase comes up, he wants to take a vacation to California, they can just look at their budget and their financial goals. Does it fit? Have we got the money? If we do, okay. If we don't, uh uh-uh. That decision's already made. Once a couple decides on their financial goals, and once they've set their budget, they've already eliminated a lot of the conflicts because then all they have to do is just say, is it in our budget? It preempts conflicts about where the money goes, and it can provide a roadmap to financial freedom. And I really don't want to get off into this except to tell you that I have a whole different seminar on financial freedom. My wife sometimes helps me with it because my wife is a CPA and an MBA and a certified financial planner, and she's helped me work with couples. But one of the things that we have found is that there's so, particularly young couples, there's so many young couples that are drowning in a sea of debt. And when they get in that situation, that money stress places stress on the marriage, and a lot of marriages don't make it. We are seeing so many couples, particularly, and and I'm just really adamant about this, credit cards are dangerous to marriage. If people don't get a handle on credit cards, they're kind of like last night we talked about the Internet. The Internet is wonderful if you use it correctly. But boy, it causes some problems if you don't. Well, credit cards are great if you use them correctly, but they are so much danger if you don't. So I always go over financial issues with couples and I always make sure, uh, and one of the other things it does, a financial assessment, is it surfaces problems, structural problems in the marriage. I'll never forget, several years ago I had a couple that I was working with, in fact they're back in my office now, I'm working with them again on an unrelated issue, but they had declared bankruptcy, they were broke. And I was trying to figure out what happened here How did they go broke? And I was talking with a husband, and I found out from his wife that he smoked marijuana. So I asked him, about how many joints do you smoke on an average day? And he told me. I said, about how many joints do you smoke in an average week? And he told me. I said, how much does each joint cost? And he told me. And I got out my calculator. I did something he had never done. I calculated how much he was spending a year on his marijuana habit. And it came to over $7,000. And this was a couple that had a combined income of $42,000. And I said to him, I said, do you realize that you are spending over $7,000 a year going up in smoke, literally going up in smoke? And he sat there dumbfounded, no, I never thought about that. And I said, well, it's no wonder you've gone broke. And so we had to first deal with his pot habit, then we dealt with his marriage, I mean his money problems, and then we dealt with his marriage problems. But if you focus on a couple's budget, if you get them to sit down and do a budget together, you're going to eliminate a lot of conflicts. Principle number five, as we work our way up the ladder of importance, recognize that you are responsible for your own emotions. If you're filling in a blank, you are responsible for your own emotions. Be very, very careful when you express your feelings and watch which way your finger is pointing. And I sometimes mean this literally and I sometimes mean this figuratively, but every communication or interaction between a couple, I tell them, has a finger in it. And the way you tell that is the pronoun they use. You, 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 you is a finger in the face. 
And people tend not to respond too well to that. I, and fingers pointing to me, when you don't call when you're going to be late after work, I feel anxious. All right, now who owns that emotion? Well, I do. I said, I, it's my emotion. I feel anxious. I worry about you. You never called. You made me upset. You're so inconsiderate. Which way is the finger pointing? Well, it's in their face. Every message has got a finger. It's either pointing to me or it's pointing to my partner. And there is a difference between saying, well, I feel. When this happens, I feel. Or you always or you never. To effectively communicate, we must express the actual feeling that we own. That is to say, the issue is not just my concern or my disagreement. It's how I feel about it, how my partner's behavior makes me feel about it. And by the way, simply beginning to complain with I feel is not communicating. This is hard for some folks to understand. For example, I tell, I tell couples, talk to your partner and tell them how you feel. Okay, you're selfish. No, tell them how you feel. Okay, I feel you're selfish. Well, no, that's not it. That's not the emotion. I feel you don't care. I feel you're too dominating. No, that's not a genuine emotion. That's an accusation. What is the emotion? Well, the emotion is I feel happy when, I feel frightened when, I feel angry, lonely, upset, excited, confused, depressed, puzzled, hopeful, overwhelmed. And sometimes I just give them a list. I give them a list of emotions and I say, okay, you pick the one you feel. What is it that you're experiencing that makes you upset with your partner? And if I can get them to say, here's the way I feel when. When you overdraw our bank account, it makes me feel frustrated. It makes me feel hopeless. It makes me feel anxious. It makes me feel afraid. If I can talk about the feelings, then I can go so much further with them than we simply talk about the emotions. Number four, learn the one thing men and women can do to immediately improve their marriage. And there actually is a secret. There's one thing that a man can do that will immediately improve his marriage. There's one thing that a woman can do that will immediately improve the marriage. Would you like to know that secret? Well, I'm going to tell you. This right here is worth the price of admittance right, right here. But before I do, let me first give you the one most common dysfunctional interactional marital pattern. All right, I'm going to tell you the one mistake that people tend to make most often in marriage. This is the most common dysfunctional marital pattern. And here it is, so watch closely. There it is. Distancer, pursuer, pursuer, distancer. If you're filling in the blanks on your study guide, I want you to make sure you put in there distancer, pursuer, or pursuer, distancer. What do I mean by that? I mean by that that one marriage partner is trying to get away from emotional intimacy or intensity, and the other marriage partner is trying to pursue them, is trying to get closer to them, is trying to become emotionally intense with them. Or, conversely, it could be started by the pursuer. One 
marriage partner is trying to pursue their partner and get emotionally intense with them, and it causes the other marriage partner to get away from them. One person's chasing, one person's running. Emotionally, one person is distancing, and the other person is pursuing. Now, I want you to think for a moment, and let's see how well you do with this. Because this can get out of hand. The more the pursuer pursues, the more the distancer distances. Or conversely, the more the distancer distances, the more the pursuer pursues. And it escalates. Which marriage partner is distancing from emotional intensity? Is it the man or the woman? Which one is avoiding that? Who is the distancer? Is it the man or the woman? What would you guess? Who's the distancer? You're right. It's the man. The man is the one, typically, now not always, but most of the time, it's the man who's trying to avoid emotional intensity. It is the woman who is pursuing. And the more she pursues, the more he distances. The more he distances, the more she pursues. And around and around we go. Now, what one thing, if you've got that picture in your mind, what one thing more than any other arouses a woman's negativity. What just sets a woman off just gets her all agitated and she is going to become angry with her husband. Well, I'm going to give you the answer. I won't make you guess. The one thing that's going to set a woman's negativity off is stonewalling. Now, what in the world is stonewalling? It's this right here. This guy is stonewalling. What is he doing? He's not listening. He is the distancer. He wants to get away. He doesn't want to hear what his wife is saying. So he is going to stonewall. He can do it in a lot of ways. He can bury himself in his television. He can roll his eyes and act aggravated. He can walk out the door. He can do anything in the world to indicate to his wife, I do not want to hear what you're saying. And when she recognizes that her husband is not listening to her, her autonomic system, that is to say the part of her biology that she doesn't control, her heart rate, her perspiration, her hormones, all of her system is just going to go haywire. Because here's what I want you to fill in on your blank. Are you ready? On the study guide there, women want to be Heard, H-E-A-R-D. Women want to be heard. And I want you to make sure you put that down. And when a man indicates that he does not want to hear his wife, it really escalates that pursuer-distancer pattern. Does that make sense? Women want to be heard. What is your prediction for this marriage? <laughs> not good. They are not off to a good start. I don't have a very good feel for this marriage. It is not going to work. Okay. Women want to be what? Heard. They want to be heard. They want to be heard. Men, on the other hand, want to avoid attacks. Men do not like emotional intensity. 
What, the, what Dr. John Gottman found, he did an interesting thing. This has been about 20 years ago. People have been studying couples for decades. But he did something that had never been done before. He was up in Washington, in Seattle, Washington, and he created what he calls a love lab, which is basically an apartment that he'd bring couples in for a weekend, and they would measure them and observe them and film them and all of this stuff. And he decided to take two couples who were in the midst of some conflict and wire them to measure what was going on internally in their biology. And what he found was when two couples got into an emotionally intense interaction, you might call that a conflict or an argument, but an emo any emotionally intense interaction, the woman's autonomic system, that is the part of her biology, bear in mind that she doesn't control. Her heartbeat, her blood pressure, her respiration, her hormones, calm down. They go lower. Now, y'all are really bright folks. Stop and think for a moment. They're arguing, and yet her autonomic system, her biology gets calmer. Why is that? Can, you, can you, anybody think why that is? Say it again. Yeah, she's being heard. She's getting it out. She's calming down. What he found, and we didn't know this, is when they get a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, get into an emotionally intense interaction, his system, and bear in mind, this is the autonomic system, not the part he consciously controls, it goes haywire. His heart rate increases, his perspiration, his hormones, he gets a shot of adrenaline, he gets that fight or flight syndrome, he wants out. He does not want to be there. And please bear in mind, this is biology, this is not conscious. But he becomes very uncomfortable. By the way, this is why nine times out of ten, when I get a couple in my office, it's the woman who makes the appointment and drags the man there. I very rarely get a man called up and say, man, I want to come down and talk about my problems. <laughs> they don't do it. They don't want to be there. It's the woman who drags them there. She wants to talk about problems. They just want to get out. They want to go hunting. Okay? They want to go out in the woods. They want to do something, but they want to get out of there. So, what we have found is why you have that pursuer-distancer pattern. She wants to be heard, and so she is pursuing her husband. He feels like he's being attacked, so he is getting away, and it just escalates and gets worse. And By the way, there is only one category of men that Dr. John Gottman found whose autonomic system actually gets calmer when he gets into an emotionally intense interaction with his wife. And you need to hear this. The only category of men who get in an argument and calm down are wife beaters, abusers. And the reason he calms down is he is thinking in his mind, I'm about to give it to her. And he's about to beat that woman into a pulp. So ladies, you don't want a man who gets calmer when you argue. You want the common kind who just really doesn't want to be there. Why is that? Well, because that means he's normal, but it also means that we, we can work on this. Men are better, are more likely to experience a flight response. When they get into a fight with their wife, they want to get out. 
Women are better at self-soothing. They can calm themselves down. Men are more likely to retain distress, maintaining thoughts. When a man and a woman has a conflict, has an argument, she can calm down and get on about her life. He's still agitated. He's still talking to himself. He's still angry. He's still resentful. And it's going to go on for a while because that's a part of his biological nature. And this is what it feels like if you're a man. I'm trying to communicate here, okay? Now, I showed you the picture of the bride. This is the picture. This is what the groom feels like, okay? Look at the mighty lion there. King of the beast. And what's he doing? He's cowering. Why? Because his wife is yelling at him. And that's what it feels like. By the way, I know all this stuff. I've got a PhD in this stuff, and it feels this way for me. I don't like it, but I've learned how to deal with it, and I'm going to tell you how. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to show you something. Do you believe God inspired the Bible? I do. Do you believe God created men and women? I do. Do you believe God knows our natures? I do. I think God understood this. Now, we just figured this out in the last 20 years. God knew it all along. Are you in 1 Peter chapter 3? Begin reading verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of of their wives. Now get this picture in your mind. Here is a good Christian woman married to a pagan husband. In the first century, this would have happened a lot. She would have been converted. Her husband had not been. So she finds herself in a pickle. She has got an unbelieving husband. What does God tell that woman to do? God says, if you want your husband to be converted, you nag him and you hector him and you lecture him. Is that what your Bible says? What does your Bible say? Without what? Words. Be submissive. And without words. Let's keep reading. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I want you to look carefully at that passage for a minute, and I want you to notice what God says about men and women and how they ought to interact. Look at what He says for men. He says, you men need to be considerate. You need to be considerate. Wives, 
you men, you need to be respectful. You need to be a partnership. You need to pray together with your wife. Wives, he said, you be submissive. You demonstrate an inner beauty. You demonstrate a pure and reverent life and a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, if you look closely at those two columns, that is the answer to the problem I just described. What did John Gottman find? He found that what is the number one thing that women want more than anything else? What do women want? To be heard. To be heard. What does Simon Peter tell husbands? He says, you be considerate. You listen. Listen to your wife. You take her. What does it mean to be considerate? It means to consider. It means to take into account. It means to pay attention to her perspective. What is the number one thing he tells women to do? He tells them to be submissive. Don't be harsh and angry and accusatory. You talk to your husband, but you talk to him with a softened tone. You don't pursue him and back him in a corner so that he feels trapped. You don't push, you pull. What does Simon Peter say? He says, you show your husband Jesus Christ by your life, by the reverence and the beauty of your life. Do you think God knows what He's doing? I think so. And this is the answer to the number one problem that husbands and wives have. What makes a woman beautiful? Well, I guarantee you, this is not what it is. It's when she smiles at her husband. That's what makes a woman beautiful. Those supermodels on TV, they're not beautiful to me. My wife is beautiful to me. You know why? Because those supermodels don't care anything about Dan Williams. They're not going to smile at me. My wife smiles at me. She acts like she's happy to see me, and that just makes my ego just go sky high. Now, here's what men can do. We can learn to manage our anxiety so that we can listen. We can recognize that what's going on with us is perfectly normal, biological, but it's also manageable. And I work with husbands, and we go through a process where I get them to learn how to manage their anxiety so they can quit distancing and running away and start listening to their wives. There's five self-soothing secrets that I work with husbands on. One is self-talk. And I get them to say to themselves, my wife needs to hear me. I can handle this. My head's, my head's not going to blow up and my eye's not going to pop out. I can calm myself down. I tell them to slow down and take deep, regular breaths because when a man's autonomic system gets out of whack, he starts breathing shallow. He doesn't recognize what's going on. And you can calm your autonomic system down if you're aware that it's going on. Just start, just kind of slow down and breathe deeply. Breathe in and out. Muscle relaxation. Find out that people sometimes aren't aware of this. When a man gets in a disagreement with his wife, sometimes he gets all tense. And I just teach them how to relax your body. One muscle at a time. Relax your body. Remember what I said a few minutes ago about a timeout? If a man gets into a situation where he is feeling too agitated or anxious, I say, take a time out, leave for an hour, and then come back. And then finally, ask your wife for help. 
Honey, I want to hear you, but I'm really having a tr- problem with this right now. Could we slow down? Could we calm down? Could you say it in another way? Now, does that make sense? A man can learn to listen. He can learn that it's important to his wife and he can learn to manage his anxiety so that he can do what 1 Peter 3 and verse 7 tells him to do, and that is be considerate of your wife. So the number one thing a man can do is listen. The number one thing that a woman can do is she can soften or moderate her startup so that she can be heard, so that the husband can hear. And by the way, this is really important. I have learned over the years that the very first encounter of the reunion of the day, when the husband comes home from work, the wife comes home from work, if the man walks into the house and the very first thing that he encounters is his wife going, you didn't do this, you forgot to pick up the eggs, you didn't take out the trash, it's not going to work. It's going to go, it's going to escalate. Ladies, do me a favor. If you have a problem with your husband, Do not make it the first thing you do when you reunite at the end of the day. Don't do that. You kiss your husband. You say, I'm glad to see you. You say, how was your day? And then you say, by the way, let me tell you something you didn't do right. But don't the very first startup at the end of the day frames the rest of the evening. And you're not going to rescue that evening. Because once a man runs into a buzzsaw, his system is agitated. Okay, I'm trying to be, by the way, very practical here. He gets agitated and it's hard for him to calm down. So if you can soften your startup. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples of this because I like to be really practical. And this is right out of John Gottman's book here. But he, he gives examples of harsh startups and then a softened startup. Okay. When your mother-in-law comes over tonight, visits tonight. You plan to tell her how much it hurts you when she criticizes your parenting skills. You want your husband, who is very defensive when it comes to mom, to back you up. All right, you have that picture in your mind? You have this intrusive mother-in-law. She's criticizing your parenting skills. You're going to have a little talk with her. You want your husband to back you up. So here's what won't work. You turn to your husband and you say, I can't stand it when your mother comes over. She is always riding my back about how we raise our kids and you won't do a blessed thing about it. Now, that is what's known as a harsh startup. And what's it going to create in the husband? Somebody tell me. Yeah, defensiveness, agitation, anger. Now, everything this lady says may be true. But there's a difference between being true and being effective. So, here is a different way to start it up. I want you to know something that's deeply uh, important to me. I'm worried that your mom is going to be critical of me tonight. And I need you to back me up. Now, she said the same thing. But she softened her startup. She owned her emotion. She put the finger at herself. She said, I'm worried that your mother's going to be critical and I need you to back me up. All right? Here's another one. 
You wish your partner would cook dinner tonight and take you, or take you out to dinner. So here's how you're going to get your husband to be good to you. You never take me anywhere. I'm sick of doing all the cooking. Is that going to work? Well, I guarantee you, if he takes you out to dinner, it's not going to, it's not going to be a happy occasion. Why? Because that comes over as an attack. It's an attack. Honey, I love you, and I, I really need your help. I'm getting tired of cooking. You know, it would really be nice if you took me out tonight. Now, she said the same thing, but she said it in a different way. Does that make sense? There's some more examples here, but I'm running out of time. But I just want you to understand the number one thing that a husband can do to dramatically improve and immediately improve the quality of the marriage is to do what? To listen. The number one thing that a woman can do to dramatically improve the quality of the marriage, immediately improve it, is to soften her startup. And you find it all in 1 Peter chapter. So let me give you five softening secrets, ladies, if I could. Number one, start with a positive. Start with a positive. And, I, and here's a, an acronym that I use. You need to tease your husband. You need to tease him. T stands for tone. What does the Bible say about a harsh answer stirs up anger? Solomon recognized the value of using a neutral tone. Emotion. You own your emotion. You say, oh, I'm lonely when you. I'm worried when you. It's my emotion. Appreciation. You know, honey, I really like it when you take me out every now and then. I really like it when you give me a break with the kids. Husbands respond to appreciation. They don't respond to nagging. Your statement about the relationship. I like it. It makes me feel closer to you when you... And then an example of what you want. And by the way, husbands don't always know. And a lot of times what I get in counseling is, is wives come in and they want their husbands to be mind readers. Well, he's supposed to just know that. Well, if you will just consider husbands like puppies, they just need to be trained, okay? Tell them what you need. Speaking as a man, I appreciate that. I like to know what is it I'm supposed to do, but tell your husband. So start with a positive. Use I statements. Keep your finger here, not there. Describe, state your needs. You can even complain, but don't blame. Use a timeout when you need to. And ask your husband for help. Ask your husband for help. Honey, there's something on my mind I really need to tell you, but you need to help me here because I don't want to come across wrong. You can ask your husband to help. All right. Consideration. Consideration. You think this husband's going to win any prizes for best husband of the year? I don't think so. He's not doing what Peter says. He needs to show consideration. Principle number three, as we work our way up, practice compassion with your partner. Practice compassion with your partner. Let me ask you a theological question. Why was it necessary for God's Son to become human. Now, y'all are Christians, and y'all been very bright people. Somebody help me with this. Why was it necessary for God's Son to come to earth, become human? Bingo. There's a million-dollar answer right there. James got the one I'm looking for. There's a lot of reasons. He came to die on the cross. He came to reveal God. He came to teach us truth. But the number one answer, Jesus had to become human and come to earth 
so that he could understand how I feel. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to go start with chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Here's a very deep theological truth. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, now watch this, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We find the same thought in Hebrews chapter 4. But what is the point? The point is Jesus had to come so that he could feel what we feel. What is it, compassion? Well, here's what it is. The word compassion literally means to feel with, to understand and empathize with another person's emotional reality. The Bible says in Matthew 9, 36, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. His heart went out to them because he could feel for them. He could feel their lostness, their hopelessness their spiritual confusion, compassion. The Bible tells us this is one of the Christian virtues. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. This is actually a command. I'm supposed to have compassion on my brothers and sisters. Here's these two fellows, and one says to the other, he says, I know exactly how you feel. And based on that picture, I'd say, that's right, he can tell how he feels. When I have compassion, I know how someone feels. Why am I telling you this? Because it will help me have a stronger marriage and be a better husband. If I can place myself in my wife's shoes, if I can understand how she feels. And by the way, one of the tools of a marriage counselor is to generate compassion. Can you tell me how your husband feels when this happens? Can you describe for me how your wife feels? And if I can get them in their emotional reality of their partner, 99% of the work is already done. I need to practice compassion. The next time I get into conflict with my partner, the next time I'm arguing with my wife, I need to stop, slow down, take a deep breath, and say, well, wait a minute. How does my wife feel right now? What is she experiencing? And if I can do that, I guarantee you the next thing that comes out of my mouth is going to be very, very different. Moving on quickly, principle number two, learn how to forgive and how to ask for forgiveness. Learn how to forgive. Folks, I don't know how in the world any of us are going to make it in the church, in marriage, or in this world if we don't learn how to forgive. By the way, have you heard of the golden rule? Who can tell me what the golden rule is? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. Did you realize that there is an even higher standard? 
I call it the platinum rule. The golden rule says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But let me give you, do you realize platinum is more valuable than gold? Here's the platinum rule. Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. We've already looked at that. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, look at what he says there. The platinum rule says, do unto others as God has done to you. Paul says, I need to remember when someone does me wrong all the times I've messed up and all the mistakes that I've made. And yet in spite of all of my imperfections and shortcomings and mistakes, God in Christ forgave me. Every Sunday I'm reminded when I take communion that God forgave me in spite of my sins. And Paul says, okay, next time your brother wrongs you, next time your wife gets on your nerves, the next time your husband steps on your toes, can you remember something? Can you remember that you've made your share of mistakes and yet God forgave you? My friends, that is the platinum rule and we're not going to make it in marriage if we don't learn how to forgive and how to ask for forgiveness. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And finally, the number one principle, practice your faith together. Practice your faith together. Study after study has demonstrated it really is true. The family that prays together stays together. Jesus put it this way, what God has joined together, let man not separate.